Okay, good morning everyone. Are we well? Good, good. Oh, dear idea. Let me just move this about. Okay, we've, uh, there's actually been a bit of a change in our scheduled programming, if we can call it that. Um, you may have noticed on last week's notices, it said that the other Morris brother was going to be preaching. It was meant to be Luke, uh, who was going to be speaking today. But he, he was unable to do it. Uh, it's had stuff come up with work that's just really kind of increased his workload. So I've, we've moved some things around. So instead of Luke Morris, this morning you have Sam Morris. I was going to say I'm afraid you have, but no, I don't want to start on that setting. You have, you have me today. Um, so I'm sure what, what I'm going to share is probably different to what Luke had had on his heart and, and the way we were going to deliver it in that. But, um, you, you know, me, me and Luke, we have... Uh, different interests, different uh, things that we would draw our illustrations and things from. But I wanted to actually start today with something or rather someone who is common to me and my brother. I wanted to start by talking about our granddad. And now our granddad, I'm absolutely convinced that he made the best egg and bacon sandwiches. Absolutely. He made the best as far as I'm concerned. He used to have one every day. Uh, it's what he would have for his breakfast, and if ever we were there at that time of day, we'd have the privilege of being able to, to tuck into one of these egg and bacon sandwiches. And I've recently, I'm pretty sure I've worked out the secret behind it. The secret behind my granddad's egg and bacon sandwiches was how rarely he would wash the pan that they were cooked in. Mum, I spoke to mum about this in the week just to make sure my memory was correct and she said sometimes it would be days before it was washed. I think it was even longer than that to be honest. I reckon it was probably weeks where it's just that it was cooked in, in the same content of whatever was left from the day before. That is the secret. He lived to a good age so it was, there's nothing, there was nothing wrong with that. Five for make lunch. He would have got a five plus for, for make lunch. But I think that was it. Because every time, every time he cooked it, you'd get some of the flavour from the day before. Some of the, can I say some of the debris as well caught in, but it was all, it was all good. I'm not selling you on this, am I? You just have to take my word for it. But I woke up during this week. I was aware I was preparing to, to come and speak this morning, and I just had a moment where I was laying in bed thinking about what I had to get done today, and I was just so aware of my need for God this week. I said, Lord, I, was like, I just need your inspiration. I need something just to, to, to bring on Sunday and to help bring things together. And the first thing that came into my mind was my granddad's frying pan, and I was like, that's a really odd thing to, to be thinking of. I've not really thought about it for years, but I spent some time thinking about it and as to why this had come to my mind. And in this series, what we're doing as a church is we're focusing on what it means to be a people full of the Spirit, looking to build a community of the Spirit. And it, what it feels to me like with each week that comes, every time we gather together, every time someone brings something from the front, brings the next talk, it's like we're not starting from a clean pan. Does that make sense? It's not that it's just standalone talks, but actually we're building on something that's come in the weeks before. There's an influence or a flavour, something that's been deposited in the weeks before, where I feel like we're actually building something uh, over these weeks that's just becoming fuller and fuller and giving us a, a much bigger and broader picture than that. So hopefully it makes sense now while I was thinking about my granddad's pan. You see, what I mean is last week, Paul was sharing how he was really influenced by what Ian had shared the week before. 
Ian's story about how he sought God for himself and how that was bringing change in his life. And Paul said, actually, that's the thing that sparked him off for what he shared last week. And last week, Paul was talking about uh, the, the necessity to have a relationship with God. It was built on what Ian had brought the week before. Dirty pan from the week before coming through, but the flavor of what Ian had said, the influence of that really showing through. And I honestly believe that today that's going to be the case as well. So what Paul said last week, I'm actually going to be building on that in terms of what it means to have uh, a relationship with God and the necessity of a relationship with God. But this morning, the, the title for this morning is Everyday Love. But it's not something that is in and of itself just a standalone talk. It's built from what's come the weeks before. See, the flavor of what Ian shared spilt into what Paul shared. He built on that. And we're going to be building on the content we're going to be building on the impression that's been deposited in previous weeks. And I honestly think it's, le- it's building something much fuller for us over these weeks. So as we continue through the remaining weeks of this series, what I hope and what my expectation is, is that we're going to continue to build a full and rich understanding of what it means to be a community of the Spirit. But I want to take us back right to week one when we started this series, because we said it's not just enough to know these things in theory. We need to be living it out in practice. And I think really that's where the fullness of it is going to come. Not just in understanding it, but in living it out and putting it into practice. So as I say this morning, we're going to be looking at everyday love. If you've got your Bibles with you, if you can turn to Luke and chapter 10. If you were here last week, you might be wondering if you're experiencing some sort of deja vu. uh, Because this is the same chapter that Paul was speaking from last week. But we're actually going to be a few verses before. So Paul was looking at the story of um, Mary and Martha and the the, the time um, that they spent with Jesus, this experience they had. We're going to become a little bit before that. And just to recap the context of these verses, Paul did it in much more detail last week than I'm going to this week. But in the context uh, of what has just happened, Jesus has sent out the 72. He sent them out to the surrounding towns and the surrounding villages. It's given them authority, Uh, it's given them power, and as they've gone around, they've been proclaiming the kingdom, so declaring that the kingdom is coming, but not only through their words, they've also been demonstrating the kingdom as well, through through wonders and miracles and healings, all those sorts of things. And they've uh, now returned to Jesus, to put it full of joy, to put it in a way that people might put it nowadays, I think they were buzzing, they were just so full of, of enthusiasm and joy and excitement about what they've seen, about what they've been involved in, about the things that they've seen happen. But Jesus reaffirms to them that they're not to rejoice in the works that they've done. They're not solely to rejoice in the authority and the power that they've been given, but what they should rejoice in is the truth that they are known by God, that they have relationship with him, that that above everything else should be where their security is, that that is where their joy should be, that is where their peace comes from. Above all else, they are known by God. So we're gonna, So that's kind of the context of that. So the 72, they're now with Jesus. And Jesus has been explaining that to them about how they're known by God, how that their names are written in heaven. And then we're going to pick up from verse 25 with a parable that may be familiar to many of us here. It's a parable of the Good Samaritan. So we'll pick up from verse 25. It says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that's to put Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. 
And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbour? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go, and you do likewise. So in this, in this passage that we've just been looking at, we've got this lawyer. Seems like he's a bit of a sneaky kind of a guy. He's not sincerely wanting to be taught by, by Jesus. It says here that he was looking to test him. He's kind of looking to, to trap him, almost. So there's no real sincerity in the question that he was answering Jesus. But yet he asked two main questions. And the first question is this. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Effectively, what must I do to enter into God's kingdom? And Jesus comes back with a question of his own. If you've read... Uh, much of the Gospels of, of kind of the life and ministry of Jesus, that's a, a tactic that Jesus used often. When people asked him questions, he would ask, ask them questions back and kind of allow people to, to work things out themselves. And Jesus comes back with this question. He says, okay, so if you want to know what, um, how you get eternal life, here's the question I'm going to ask you. What is written in the law? What do you understand by it? Essentially, what are the requirements that you think need to be fulfilled what are the commandments that you need to be fulfilled in order to, to be part of God's kingdom, in order to enjoy life with him forever? And the lawyer answers, gives this answer. He says, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and also to love your neighbour as yourself. This answer is the correct answer. He gives the right answer. He knows it. He knows what the answer is to be. First and foremost, above all else, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love God with everything that you are. Heart, soul, mind and strength. That's pretty, oh, oh dear, that's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? That's the whole person. Love God with everything that you are. Love God with everything that you have. That is the greatest and most important thing that you can give yourself to. Because the lawyer here is asking, what's the way to eternal life? To know God and for God to know you is what eternal life is about. It's about relationship. It's about that giving of yourself to loving God and for him loving you. This was Paul's message last week. I've lost count of the times he said this, but he said, there is one thing that is necessary. Do you remember that if you were here last week? There is one thing that is necessary. There is one thing one thing that is necessary, and that is relationship with God. Everything else is secondary to that. When we're looking at what it means to be a people of the Spirit, and we can talk about the power of the Spirit, and the gifts of the Spirit, and all of those things, they are good, they're important. 
actually they are fundamental to the kind of people that we're meant to be, but all of those things are secondary. Only one thing is necessary, and that is relationship with God. A couple of weeks ago, we were thinking about the fruit of the Spirit. What is it? What, is it? what kind of character and virtues is it that the Spirit produces within us? Love that we're thinking about today, that's one of those fruits. And how does that develop? It develops through developing a relationship with God. What do we need to do first? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. It's about relationship with Him. Just going to put that on. Love God. Develop your relationship with Him. Spend time with Him. Speak with Him. Here's the bit that I struggle with a little bit more. Allow Him time and space to speak to you. Do all of those things. And then love your neighbour also. So the lawyer, he knew the right answer, didn't he? He knew what the requirement was. And here comes his second question. He says, okay then, so who is my neighbour? And Jesus shares this parable. We've got this parable, this story uh, of a man who's on his travels. He's robbed, he's beaten, he's left on the side of the road. Effectively, he's left for dead. The people who did it to him couldn't care less what happens to him. And then along comes a priest. This is a guy, a religious man. He would have had responsibilities in the temple. He would have had a good, really good, uh, excellent knowledge of the law and the prophets. He would have known his stuff. And yet this priest, this, this religious man, this man who was part of, of God's people, he crosses the road so as to avoid the man that's lying. We're not told the reasons why. There could be many reasons why. For a priest to have touched a dead body would have made him ceremonially unclean. So it could be that he had that in his mind. He didn't want to get involved because he didn't want to make himself unclean. Could have been that he was worried that if he went to help the man, perhaps he too would get set upon by whoever had done it to the guy. We don't know the reasons why, but we're told whatever his reasons were, he crossed over the road and he walked by. Next up is a Levite. The Levites were also religious people. They assisted the priests in the temple. Again, they would have known the stuff. They would have understood the law. They would have understood the prophets. And he, just like the priest, for whatever reasons, we don't know, but he crossed the road as well. He walked by and left the guy where he was. He had nothing to do with the man who was in such obvious need of help. And then Jesus introduces to the story a Samaritan. Culturally, it would have been unthinkable for a Samaritan to help a Jew. It just would not have happened. There was a real bitterness between the two groups. In one of the commentaries that I read, uh, it, said, it put it like this, that Jesus introducing the Samaritan at this point would have been a devastating blow to the people who were listening to him because it just would not have been what they were expecting. He's thrown something completely from left field at them. It would have been hugely challenging. In introducing the Samaritan, Jesus chooses the last person who might have been expected to help. Literally the last person who would have been expected to help. But this Samaritan, seeing the man, we're told he has compassion. He's filled with compassion for the guy that's lying there in need. What does the Samaritan do? 
He doesn't walk by. He responds to the feeling, to the compassion that he has within him. He tends to him. He cares for him. It says that he um, poured out oil and wine on the guy to treat his wounds. That, they're costly things. But he poured them out to care for the man. He puts him on his own animal. Takes him to an inn. Continues to look after him there. Then when he has to continue on his travels... He gives some money to the innkeeper to continue looking after the guy. This isn't, but this isn't just small giving. This is extravagant giving. Jesus says there's two denarii. I think he makes a point of how much it is for a significant reason. From what I've read, that's about the equivalent of two days' wages. It's not a small amount of money. I was talking to my mum about this this morning. She said it's not like just change for a cup of coffee. He gave extravagantly to look after this man. Not only that, he promised to pay whatever more may need, uh, that the, the innkeeper may have needed to spend to look after the guy. He says, when I come back, I'm going to give you whatever else you, need to, whatever, whatever else you used and needed in order to take care of him. Can you see the just gulf in contrast between the way that the first two guys responded and the way that the Samaritan man did? Jesus lets the lawyer answer his own question. Really, he says, which one of these three was a neighbour to that man? The lawyer responds, he says, the neighbour is the one who showed mercy. Jesus again, he says, you're right, you've given the right answer, but now here's the challenge. He says, you go and do likewise. It's not just enough to know it, you've got to go and do it now. Really, that, that's been kind of the, the feeling through this whole series. It's not just enough to know it. We need to go and do it. We need to be living it out in practice. I think the lawyer was actually asking the wrong question in the first place. When he asked, who is my neighbour? I think what the, he was looking to do was to make some people non-neighbours in the sense of, in knowing who he was responsible for, he, he wanted to know, actually, I've got no responsibility for these people. He wanted to know almost what's the minimum that I can get away with. Who do I need to look after? Who don't I need to look after? Because then I'm just going to focus my attention on those people. I don't want responsibility for the people that I don't need to have responsibility for. Is effectively what the guy's heart is saying when he's asking this question. So I think he was asking the wrong question. The better question, the question that he should have asked, and really the question that we too should be asking, isn't a who question it's a how. It's not who is my neighbour. The question we need to ask is, how can I be a neighbour? And this is the question that Jesus answered through the parable. It's not a who, it's a how can I be a neighbour? How can I love my neighbour? Our neighbour is anyone and everyone. Whenever Jesus talks about loving your neighbour, whenever Jesus talks about considering the neighbour, it's anyone and everyone. People we know, people we just chance to meet. This is irrespective of nation, religion, culture, background, that list could go on, that is not exhaustive at all. The love that Jesus calls to does not discriminate or exclude in the way that I think the lawyer was looking to do. What Jesus teaches him, teaches him is actually the love I want you, you to demonstrate is not exclusive in that sense. It's for everyone. It's to be shown to everyone. 
How would you want to be treated? It's a good question to ask yourself. How would you like to be treated? Treat people like that. Sounds quite simple. Maybe it is in that sense. How would you want to be treated? Treat people in the same way. Friends, family. That's often fairly easy to treat your friends in the way you'd want to be treated too. Friends, family, colleagues, strangers, those we love and our enemies. This is where the challenge perhaps comes in. We can have many motivations to serve Jesus, to serve the church, to serve people. Thinking about the recent weeks we've been looking at, thinking about gifts of the Spirit and power of the Spirit, uh, there can be many motivations to, to move in those. We can have many reasons for wanting to, to, be, to be moving in the power of the Spirit. But we need to check our motivation from time to time. I think it's a really healthy thing to do. Because our overriding motivation, Scripture makes it very clear, there's actually only one motivation that we should live our lives from and serve God and serve the church and serve others through. And that motivation is love. Paul, last week, when he was focusing on power, power of the Spirit, everyday power, picked up on the verses in 1 Corinthians 13 that says you can prophesy, you can have understanding, you can have great faith, you can give everything you have away to help those who are in need. But without love, do you know what it counts for? It counts for nothing. That sounds brutal. <laughs> but if our motivation isn't love, then actually maybe we shouldn't be doing those things until we get the right, in the right place and we're serving from that right place and our hearts are in the right place. Here's something I've been challenged by. People are not projects to be won or problems to be solved. They're to be loved. And for different people, that's going to look like very different things in terms of how we act that out. What does love look like? Love can be giving someone your time to chat, to listen, to give them a chance to just talk through what's happening in their life. For someone, that's what love will look like. Love can be praying for someone who is sick or in pain, trusting that God will, will heal them. Isn't that, just think about that. What a way to love someone, someone who is sick, seeing them healed. That's a demonstration of love. Love can be buying someone a cup of coffee. That's a demonstration of love. Love can be sending a card to let someone know that you're thinking of them. To let them know that they're not by themselves. To let them know that someone cares. Love can be prophesying over someone. What God has put on your heart for them. Sharing it with them. To let them know that God is... Is, is thinking of them, that God has plans for them, that God wants to speak into their lives. That's what it means to, to show love to someone. Love can be sitting and crying with someone without even having to say a word in their grief and in their hurt. Love can look like many, many different things. One of the real influences on this series has been a book uh, called Naturally Supernatural written by a lady called Wendy Mann from King's Arms in Bedford. 
And in this book, she says, I really want you to really want you to hear this. God has created every human being with great care and attention. Every human being. Great care and attention. People we meet who do not yet know Jesus have been made in God's image. We have to understand that. We have to get that. They are made in God's image. He loves them. They have incredible value and worth. And our job is to show them just how loved they are. Then she goes on to say, the ultimate aim when people meet you is that they get a glimpse of what God is like. That he is love. That he is kind. That he is a perfect father. When love is your motivation, speaking to people about Jesus becomes a joy and a privilege. And it's much more likely to become a part of your everyday life. Because we're looking to just express love to people. And again, just coming back to the context of this series, being a people who are dependent on the Spirit, growing in love is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that we, I think I said it the other day, speaking about fruits of the Spirit, we don't manufacture it or produce it ourselves. It's something that the Spirit grows in us as we enjoy relationship and fellowship with God. 1 John 4.19 tells us that we love because He loved us first the only reason that we can love other people is because God has loved us first let's go back to to that passage in Luke 10 that we were looking at love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and then love your neighbour as yourself any love that we have flows out of our relationship with God any love that we have flows out of the revelation and experience of his love for us How can you love people more? Might be a question you're asking yourself. How can you love people more? By knowing how much God loves you would be a good place to start. And I understand that for some that's not necessarily an easy thing. That for some of us accepting love can be very hard. Because of our past, because of the way we think about ourselves. But whether you find it easy to accept or not let me tell you this God loves you John 3.16 says for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life that eternal life that that lawyer was asking about that's why Jesus came that's why Jesus died on the cross for us and we're told the reason there in John 3.16 why did God send his son Because he loved the world so much. That was God's motivation. And this self-given act of Jesus was taken very personally by the Apostle Paul. When Paul is writing to the Galatians, he wrote this of Jesus in Galatians 2.20. Paul said this, you can just hear just the, the certainty of it as he says it. Speaking about Jesus, he says, He died for me. He gave himself for me. And this isn't just true of Paul. It's not just a claim that Paul can make of himself. It's not just a truth for Paul when he was writing to the Galatians. This is true of all believers. If you're here this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you too can say, he loved me. He gave himself for me. 
It was maybe quite interesting that this has fallen in the week where Valentine's Day fell. I know people have different opinions on Valentine's Day. I'm not sold one way or the other, to be honest. Sorry, Steph. But I, we, we did... Um, Steph and Eva made me a card. had leopard gecko stickers on it, so I was chuffed to bits. And uh, I, I, actually, I got Steph a, a little gift. Um, it's a wooden heart uh, with something written on it. And it says this. It says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never ends. I bought this from a, a shop. It wasn't a Christian shop. It was a shop in Faversham High Street, one of the card shops in town. And I was thrilled because I, the thought of people having these hanging in their homes, if people are buying these and hanging them in their homes, I think that is wonderful because this is lifted straight out of Scripture doesn't have the reference written on it to be honest that doesn't matter the references were added in later on anyway but the words of the scripture could be hanging on people's walls it's hanging on our wall at home and it's taken from 1 Corinthians 13 that's 1 Corinthians 13 7 to 8 those verses maybe it's because the hearts were, were smaller and needed to be bigger but there are verses that come before it as well that tell us what love is like So in the three or four verses before it says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. And then what is on the heart? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, When I spoke to Luke in the week, he was upset that he couldn't be speaking today. For one reason in particular, it's because he wouldn't get to use the word agape. That was, he said to me, I'm really upset that I'm not going to get to speak about agape. So Luke, this next bit's for you, okay? See, agape is the Greek word that we translate as love, that's used in those verses in 1 Corinthians that I just read. It's also the same word that Jesus uses when he's talk, um, when that the, sorry that the lawyer uses when he's given his answer to Jesus about loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbour. It's that same word. So that love that we just heard described in that passage in one Corinthians, that is what this agape love looks like. It's the self-sacrificial love that God has for us, that we in turn reciprocate towards God, but not just towards God, but towards others. See, while my gift to Steph, it was given on Valentine's Day, but for us, as we see that hanging in our home, and as we read those words, it's not just about being reminded and encouraged in how we're to love one another as husband and wife. That is far too narrow a scope to look at when it comes to love. It is much broader than that. And I love that we've got it hanging on our wall, because it makes me think, actually, yes, it's about how I'm meant to love Steph. It's how I'm meant to love Eva. But it's how I'm meant to love my family. It's how I'm meant to love my church. It's how I'm meant to love the people I don't get on with. It's how I'm meant to love the people that, if I'm quite honest, they're people that I might even try and cross over the other side of the road. In preparation for this morning, I came across a couple of interesting thoughts about love. You can find some interesting things on the internet. Be careful, people. One of the things that I read... Pretty much with people giving their opinions on what they thought love was. 
One of the thoughts was that love is only for certain people that you're close to. It's only to be shared kind of with the chosen few. That seems like a fairly common, common thought. The other one is this, is that love brings with it expectations of the beloved or expectations on the one that love is being shown to. You expect a certain response. You expect them to react in a certain way. You, uh, you know, there are expectations in that. So there are a couple of things that I came across that, that stuck with me really. Now, I don't know whether these are commonly held thoughts. I don't know whether that's what kind of the majority of people would necessarily think. But what I do know is that they, they don't fit with the love that Jesus calls us to. So we need to have our, our minds renewed. We have, need to have our minds shaped by how Jesus says that we're to be, rather than just what we might, what we might feel. We need to allow ourselves to be shaped by Jesus and shaped by the, by the scriptures. You see, this love that we're called to is not limited to the certain few. And it does not carry with it conditions or expectations about how it's to be received. We don't only love people because we think, oh, they're going to respond in a certain way. Or they're going to accept it when I give it. Do you know what? You just love them and let them respond how they're going to respond to it. I had a couple of occasions. It happened on the same day. I was having one of those days where I was convinced God was just speaking to me through a few things. And I was walking over the railway bridge. There was a lady there with, with some, uh, I think she had three, three children with her. And they, um, a couple of them had bikes. And they were having to get the bikes down the steps. Her daughter was too small to carry the bike. So this woman was trying to get all the children and the bike down the steps. So I just offered, can I help you take the bike down the steps? And she was really grateful for it. Uh, and uh, her, the little girl that was with her, she, um, she said, what's, what's he doing? <laughs> What's he doing? And she, and she explained, oh, he's just helping get the bike down. And then she asked, why is he doing that? And I thought, okay, <laughs> I was like, that's fine. And to be honest, it, 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 it was a way really of, of caring for someone and showing love for someone. And it was accepted, but there were still the questions, you know, why would, why would someone do that? Then on the same day later on, I saw uh, an elderly lady, she had... Uh, it looked like she dropped one of her bags and the contents of the bag had spilled out onto the street and I felt I needed to go and offer to help her and I went up and I offered to help her and she, she refused it no she wasn't rude about it but she just politely refused to help and I, I was maybe a bit taken aback I thought well surely if you're looking to help someone they, you know, surely they're going to accept it but here's the thing even though that lady didn't accept it I still feel like I was able to demonstrate something and it was quite, it was quite a small thing but still able to demonstrate that. So it's not limited to the certain few. And we can't do it just because we expect people to respond in a certain way. Sometimes we'll look to love someone. Or offer to serve someone. Or offer to help someone. And they might reject you. That's going to happen. That happened to Jesus. He was rejected by the people who crucified him. And yet the sacrifice that he made on the cross was for the same people. Leon Morris uh, written a commentary uh, on the book of Luke so it wasn't he has written one on Luke but this was on the 1 Corinthians thing when he's describing love in terms of that agape love that we've been looking at I think I've shared this before but when I read through it again it just <laughs> really stirred me and got me thinking he says that this is what love is he says the Christians thought of love as that quality that we see on the cross it is a love for the utterly unworthy 
A love that proceeds from God who is love. It is a love that's lavished on others without a thought whether they are worthy or not. It proceeds from the nature of the lover, not from any attractiveness in the beloved. The Christian who has experienced God's love for him while he was yet a sinner has been transformed by the experience. Now he sees people as those for whom Christ has died. The objects of God's love and therefore the objects of the love of God's people. In his measure he comes to practice the love that seeks nothing for itself but only the good of the loved one. Can you see it? It's got to flow out of the love that God has shown us. I just want, I just want to share one more thing this morning. I want to finish just by spending a little time thinking about compassion. In the parable that we've been looking at this morning, when the Samaritan saw the man, it says quite clearly he had compassion on the man. Jesus was also moved by compassion on many occasions. It's something that flowed out of his love that he had for humankind. It, it was an overflow of that. His compassion was part of that. Mark 6, 34, before he fed the 5,000, it says that when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. Luke 7, 13, uh, when Jesus comes across a widow, her son has just died. It says, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and he said to her, do not weep. And then Jesus raises her son back from the dead. The Greek word translated compassion. Prepare yourselves to hear this. The Greek word translated compassion conveys the idea of being moved to one's gut or one's bowels. Probably weren't expecting me to say that, right? Being moved. Bowels were, th- sorry to talk about this, but bowels, they were thought to be the seat of love or pity. That's what they understood by that. That's kind of where, where love is rooted. That was what the understanding was. Or let's put it another way, perhaps a way that we can relate to a little bit more. Compassion moves someone to the very depths of their being. All right, a few more nods now as we're talking about this one. It moves people to the very depths of their being. I don't know, can you ever think of a time where you have felt so much for someone that it's just moved you to to your core, that you just feel like it's at the very deepest part of you? That is what compassion is. But it's a feeling that produces movement or action. It leads you on to do something about the need that you see. I think we can be sympathetic to people. We can feel for them. But sympathy doesn't necessarily lead us on to do anything about it. Compassion's different than that. We feel it, and then it demands a response from the person who's feeling it. We see that with Jesus. Jesus had compassion on the crowds. He went and then he taught them many things, and then he fed them. For the woman who just lost her son, Jesus had compassion on her, and it led him to raising her son from the dead. Can you see? That's what compassion does. It's not just enough to know it. It's not just enough to feel it. You have to do something about it. Again, Wendy Mann, who I mentioned a little while ago. Let me come back. I'll come back in that just a sec, actually. Last year, in Manchester, there was a a seven-year-old boy called Bobby Brewster. 
Last year, he saved up £25 of his pocket money to buy food, which he then went out and handed to the homeless on the streets. Seven-year-old boy. He also distributed clothes to help them warm. He went out with teams at night to do that, to distribute clothes. I think he was looking to go out and do the same thing with, with um, sleeping bags as well. He's volunteering at his, lo- at his local soup kitchen. A seven-year-old boy is doing this. Why would he do this? A few months before, he and his parents had gone out for a day in Manchester, seen lots of homeless people on the streets, and his mother puts it like this. She says that, that Bobby was absolutely devastated by what he'd seen. But it wasn't just enough that he felt that. What did it do? We can learn a lot from this little boy, I think. It led to him taking action. It cost to him £25 of his own pocket money. £25 is a lot of money for anyone, let alone a seven-year-old. But what he felt led him to take action. Just thought it was a really good demonstration of what compassion can actually look like in practice. So Wendy Mann, she says, when she started speaking to people on the streets about Jesus, she would often pray for courage. I can relate to that. I often ask for courage in these situations. And while she still asks God for courage, over the years she's also been asking God for something else. And that's increased compassion. She says that when you connect with how God feels about the people you come into contact with, it's difficult to be indifferent and to ignore what you see. Compassion allows us to see people the way that God sees them. It allows us to feel about people the way that God feels about them. I've been really provoked by this as I've prepared this week. I'm going to start asking God to give me greater compassion. To see people how God sees them. To feel about people the way that he feels about them. I'm trusting that as I ask God for this, he's going to give it. But the challenge is going to come here. When I feel compassion, the challenge is going to be, what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do with it? Because compassion sees, feels, and then it does something about the need as well. We're going to come and worship. We're going to come and celebrate our God. We're going to come and worship him because because he loves us. The reason we're here this morning is because God loves us, right? Because he demonstrated his love for us through sending Jesus. He loves you. He gave himself for you. That's reason to come and praise, isn't it? That's reason to come and worship. But we're actually, before we get into our song worship, we're going to come and take communion together. We're going to come and break bread together. We're going to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross because he loves us. Pete's going to come and lead us in that. So I'm going to stop before I steal all his thunder.